This is the fourth week in our series that we've called uh, Hinges. And we're talking about the doctrines of our faith, which hinge doors that open and close for us based on the truth of those doctrines. And last week, Jerry talked about the doctrine of sin. For you Bible students, that's the doctrine of homardiology, all right? You can impress your friends with that word. Just write that down in your notes. And sometime, you know, when somebody's talking, you know, you know that word, root word, hamarta, you know, you'd be able to impress yourself, right, Jerry? Matt, those guys, they'd be very impressed if they, they knew that. Jerry did a great job, though, last week talking about the doctrine of sin. And, you know, sin, as Jerry said last week, sin is the problem. It's our problem. Our sin is what has separated us from God, from the relationship that we were originally created to have. We looked just a little bit last week about what life was like before sin, what this earth was like. And for a moment, I want you to, to think back to that. I, I did this week. I, I went back and read the Genesis account before sin. Everything was exactly as God had intended it to be. There was peace because of that. Have you ever had that place in your life when it just seemed like, maybe it was just for a moment, but it just seemed like everything was exactly as it should be. And if you're like me, when you have those moments, you go, okay, what's going to happen, right? Something must be going to happen because my life just doesn't work like this. But for that particular moment, I know we've got two boys in college and Diana, every time that all three kids now are home, she just kind of gets this piece about her that this is just the way that it should be. And like, it's really no big deal. The grocery bill's higher, you know, at dinner, you know, I used to have plenty because I'm sitting there with Diana and Kayla and now there's not enough food. I mean, it's really not as good as it could be, right? The best thing for it could be is that they'd be sitting there with duct tapes across their mouth so that, you know, they wouldn't be eating. My... That's another story for another sermon. But for her, everything is directly as it should be. And that's what, that's what God said when he had created all of this earth and all of the things that he created for mankind to enjoy, it was good. It was exactly as it was intended to be. And I read a little bit about, you know, the Garden of Eden there in that account. You know, there's a river that's flowing through it and four rivers came out of that river. And you know, there were beautiful fish in that river. The scripture account says that there was lots of fruit and it was good for food. So we know there was good food there. And, and there was gold and precious stones from what we read about. And God said, it's all really great. And, and I've created this man. And, and if I leave him alone, he's going to screw it up, right? So he decided that he would create a woman. And then, men, we know that everything was really as it should be, right? Right, men? We... We knew everything, yeah, you, you, you know it, right? God said it's not good for a man to be alone, and there's a reason for that, right? God said it was exactly as I've intended it to be. It was really good, things were great. And then we come to Genesis chapter three, and in Genesis chapter three, we know that everything changes. Adam and Eve were given one restriction, and that restriction was that they were not to eat of the fruit of that tree that was in the middle of the garden. And they decided that God didn't really mean what he said. And, you know, we're very hard sometimes on Adam and Eve and as we think back to Adam and Eve and the choice, the decision that they made. But the truth is that if we boil it down to that statement that they decided that God didn't really mean what he said, aren't you and I guilty of that on a regular basis? 
that we believe that God really doesn't mean what he says. We have the completed canon of scripture. We know what he wants us to do, what he doesn't want us to do. This is our owner's manual, the guidebook for life. And yet we, we say, God really doesn't mean it that way. That's what Adam and Eve said. And they decided that that rule was not really there for their good, but that it was there to restrict and suppress them. And so they made a decision to eat of the fruit of that tree And the rest, as they say, is history. Romans 5, in fact, records in verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. As a result of that sin, we have what we call original sin. We are born in sin. Scripture says, in sin, our mothers conceive us. That's the problem. Now, the question is, and as Jerry and I go through this series, we want, to, we want to answer questions along the way. We're not exhausting each one of these topics by any stretch of the imagination. You should be self-feeders. We want you to read. But certain questions come up. The question which came up for me this week is, and I'm sure many of you have had this question as well, why did God allow people to sin in the first place, Right? I mean, that's a logical question. If God is who he says he is, if he is omnipotent, if he's holy, if he's omniscient, he knew what was going to happen. He knew the consequences of that. Why did he allow people to sin? Why didn't he stop Eve? Why didn't he step in and and stop her from taking that first bite of fruit? If he just stepped in at that moment, have you ever thought about that? How different life would be? You ever wondered why he didn't do that? Now, I don't know that there is a lot of theological answers for that. I, I, I want to cause you to think about this, though. God's plan of salvation was, was ordained from eternity past. We know that in Revelation 13 and other passages of Scripture. God makes it very clear that that was his plan from the beginning to, to save us. And salvation requires us to be saved from something. So I believe that's why God allowed rebellion, the rebellion of Satan, and then subsequently Adam and Eve to sin, and so therefore the spread of sin. And the suffering that Satan brought into the world actually became the means by which Jesus, in his humanity, was made the complete and perfect savior of mankind. Now, if you're like me, you hear that and you go, okay, well, that's really good. That's neatly packaged in a theological truth, but at the same time, that doesn't totally reconcile it for me. I I don't know about you, but when I see the ravishing effects on people's lives of sin, when I see the literal destruction of people's lives because of sin, you look at the evil that's going on, especially in the Middle East right now, and these violent extremist groups which are taking the lives of innocent people so many times in the name of religion, you just think, man, it would just been we just would have been so much better off if God just had never allowed that to happen. But then we would simply be marionettes on a string. And I I rest at the end of the day on this passage, some of you are familiar with this, in Isaiah 55, where Isaiah writes, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm really glad that I have a God that sometimes I cannot understand and I cannot explain. You think about what it would be like to be subject to a God who you could understand and explain everything about. That would make you just like that God, right? And so I'm glad that that we don't have that ability, but it doesn't make it any less 
troublesome sometimes to wonder, in this case, why did God allow that original sin? So we have a problem. We call it sin. Our sin has separated us from God. But what does it mean to have a relationship with God? If you grew up in church, you've heard lots of buzz phrases used, right? I mean, there's a particular church in our community, and they're known for going door to door, going up to people's doors, knocking on the door, basically in very few sentences, telling them that they are going to hell and that they can be saved. Now, you think about how whacked out that is for somebody to hear that who doesn't really know anything about religion, doesn't know anything about Christianity, for somebody to say, do you want to be saved, right? You, you look around and you go, saved from what? You know, is my, is my house on fire? Is there, is there some other problem that's going on that I need to be saved from? But we talk about people being saved. We talk about them becoming Christians. We talk when we're little children about asking Jesus into our heart. In fact, do you know that there's really nowhere in Scripture where we're to invite Jesus into our heart? You say, well, what about that verse in Revelation where you stand at the door and knock? Look at the context of that particular passage. So we use all of this terminology, but the bottom line is that at the end of the day, we want to know what does it mean to have a relationship, to be in relationship with the creator of the universe? Now, we know that then the problem is sin. The problem is that our sin has separated us from God. But most of us think we're, we're really not bad. And we're certainly not as bad as some other people. Most people believe that if, if we live a good life, that, that basically when it, when it gets to the end, whatever that looks like, and we're not really sure what it looks like, but when we get to the end and God makes the determination that somehow he just lets us in, that he's going to open the gates because we're better than, than somebody else. I don't know about you, but I have this bad habit, and I know Diana doesn't like it. She won't even like that I'm referring to it, but I like to compare myself to other people, not just with regards to being a sinner, by the way, but you know, I've always been, I was the chubby kid. Okay, I wore the Sears Roebuck Husky jeans, you know. Becca, that's not funny. All right, I, I totally knew that laugh when you laughed, all right? I wore the husky jeans from Sears Roebuck, you know, with the reinforced knees and all that. And I've always struggled with my weight. I don't really think I'm insecure about it. I really don't care. You know, I'm 49. I have a beautiful wife. Race is over. I won. It's no problem, right? I'm good with that. So every once in a while, we're out. And we're at a restaurant. And um, I'll be looking around and I'll go, Diana, am I, as, am I as big as that guy? Now she, because she's really sweet and kind, she always turns to me and goes, no, I'm going good. He's bigger than me past the seconds. You know, I'm, I'm good with it. Now, my boys have started as they've gotten older and gotten more confident. They say, actually, you're bigger. <laughs> you know, so uh, I, I, like, I like comparing myself and I always like it that somebody is just a little bit worse than me. And, you know, I think we do that a lot, by the way. I think we do it a lot with regards to spiritual things and how we view this having a relationship with God. For example, we may, we may take a, a guy like, like Adolf Hitler, right? A really bad dude. In fact, I've got a, a German friend. He, well, he actually lives in Germany. And he tells me that even to this day, Germans feel like they really don't have a voice on the international stage because of what Hitler did. I mean, he was just a, a mean, evil man. And there are people that are still living today who are under the, uh, the consequences of decisions and choices that this man made. And they have very close family members whose lives were taken as a result of that. And so we have a tendency to go, as long as he's down there, I guarantee you I'm just a little bit better. There's this guy that I used to think was a little better than he actually is, but now that he's done some things wrong, I'm really not convinced that he, that he is. 
Now the Beebs, back in the day, I never wanted to go to a Justin Bieber concert, but back in the day, I liked the Beebs. I thought he was a nice guy. He was a cute little kid who just, you know, had a really great voice, seemed to be very talented. And that dude started doing bad things, right? I mean, maybe not quite as bad as Hitler, but he did some bad stuff, right? Didn't he like throw eggs at his neighbor's house and he had to pay restitution or something like that and races his car too fast? And so I go, man, I'm better than Hitler and I really even think I'm better than the Biebs. So I, I put myself uh, just a little bit, just a little bit higher than that. Like I, you, you can replace your name with my name there that, you know, we're kind of middle of the road, right? I'm sure that there are some people that are a little better than me, but I'm definitely better than a lot of people, Right. There are some of you in this room and I am just better than you, right? I mean, I don't, I don't mean in the sense of, I mean, I just don't do bad stuff like you do, right? Um, and there are some of you that you're a lot better than me, right? But I think I'm kind of middle of the road. That's where most of us would, would put ourselves. How about a guy like this though? A guy like, um, a guy like Billy Graham. Now there's a guy, I don't know what you think about Billy Graham, but Billy Graham is just an awesome, awesome man. God has given him a long life. He's seen literally tens if not hundreds of thousands of people come to faith as a result of his evangelism. And, and I go, oh, man, that like, that is the standard right there. I mean, you don't get much better than Billy Graham. Jerry and I were talking this week and I'm like, yeah, you know, you go from Hitler to Bieber to me and then you get up to, to Billy Graham. I mean, he's just awesome. And then Jerry and I were talking this week and I'm going, you know what though? I feel like there is somebody and I think, <laughs> I think he's even better than Billy Graham. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you really are that good, you'll buy tickets for Jerry and I to go to the Taylor Swift concert too, right? I'm like, like, that's the ultimate. I mean, if you could be as good as Matt Rice, anybody ever had Matt Rice come to the hospital, pray with you, you know, while you're laying there and you're going, I could die right now. And Matt's there and he's holding your hand and he's praying with you and he's just a nice guy, right? I mean, I've never met somebody that doesn't like Matt Rice, right? He's just awesome. He's, he's just great. And I'm going, well, that, that's really good. You know, the, the one thing that all of these people have in common, though, is at the end of the day, some are better than others, but at the, at the end of the day, if this is us and that's God, we all still fall short. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day that you may be just a little bit better. And, and some people, by the way, want me to climb this ladder and start walking across in this thing. That's not going to happen, okay? So... Let me just tell you right now, if you're staying because you think that's going to happen, go to lunch, all right? Because that's not going to happen. Some of us are a little bit, are a little bit better than others, and I, I give you that, but we still all fall short. In fact, Romans 3.23 says that we've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. I won't build out the, the illustration for you, but many of you have seen it, that it's the old analogy of the target and missing the mark. That's where we all are. And as a result of that, we're separated from God, not because of a particular sin, but because of sin. I have people say to me all the time, well, can you do this and still go to heaven? And they, you know, you, you fill in the blank, whatever, whatever you may say it is. Could you murder somebody? Could you commit adultery? I've had this question several times, even in the last year. You know, what if you, what if you took your own life? What if you committed suicide? It is not one sin that sends us to hell, it's sin that sends us to hell and separates us from God. It's the idea, by the way, that we are our own savior. If we're relying on how good we are, no matter where we are on that ladder, we're still gonna fall short. 
But being my own savior means that I'll pay the debt somehow on my own. I'll do enough good things and, and somehow, some way at the end of the day, I'll do enough to be able to be reconciled to God. And what we earn because of our sin, and we saw that last week as, as Gussie painted this picture up here and, and many of you gasped in both services as Jerry took that black paint and put it all over that. That's what sin has done. Sin has separated us from God, from the relationship that we, we were created to have. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23 says, is death. That is eternal separation from God. And that, my friends, is miserable. I mean, that's, that's, that's an incredibly horrible state to be in. And for many of us who have grown up going to church, I think we've gotten the idea that really wouldn't be that big, that big of a deal if we didn't have Jesus. But we are desperate people without Jesus. So what does God do? The whole gospel is built upon the fact of one four-letter word, and that four-letter word is love, that God loves us. If you have your Bibles, just turn uh, real quickly with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I love this passage of scripture. Early in the history of Northwest, we went through the book of Ephesians, word by word, verse by verse, and I preached on this passage, and, and it's just so rich theologically, and we won't take the time to do that this morning, but I do want to read it to you. Paul writes, and we were dead in the trespasses and sins. And I want you to miss that. I don't want to get off on a tangent, but you weren't just a little bit bad. I wasn't just a little bit bad. You, by the way, you can't be just a little bit dead, right? You go, well, I don't know. You know, he's getting close. Just go ahead and just, you know, no, you're either alive or you are dead. And Paul makes it very clear that we were dead. Verse two, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit there is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're in a desperate situation. It's not just that you're okay and you need to be cleaned up a little bit. We're dead. Two of my favorite verses, if you've been around here for a long time at Northwest, you know this. Two of my favorite words in the Bible, that phrase in verse four, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. And so God loves us so much that while we're dead, he makes a way for our sin debt to be paid. He lavishes upon us mercy and grace by sending his son Jesus to this earth and he allows him to die so that he might pay a debt that we owed that we couldn't possibly pay on our own. He punishes his own perfect sinless son on the cross in our place because that's what was required. You know, an interesting thing is that this is the only time that we read in scripture of God punishing someone who is not guilty, but he punishes Jesus. 
It had to be that way, Jesus said so himself, that he was the only way. And so he gives us Jesus. He comes to us. He he dies. He's resurrected. He's conquered death. He's going to rescue us. And I and I love this picture that we have up here on the stage. This is God and this is or this is man and this is God. And and God's over here and he he knows the condition of mankind and what we've done to his creation, what we've done to ourselves, and what we deserve is to be eternally separated from him. And yet he doesn't just yell out, and this is what I'm so thankful for. He doesn't just yell out, hey hey, uh, uh, somehow be good over there and maybe you can get over here. Do some good things. It's kind of like the lifeguard at a, at a swimming pool who looks out into the pool as they're sitting up there on their stand and they look out into the pool and they see this little child that is bobbing up and down. The child is obviously struggling. He's in the middle of the pool. He can't get to the side of the pool. And the lifeguard sees it and he goes, come on, come on, try, come on, try a little harder. Flap your arms, you can do it. And he just stands there. That's not what our God did. That's what's so awesome about salvation and about the great doctrine of salvation. That God, in his infinite wisdom, his knowledge, and in his love, he sends Jesus in bodily flesh, in the form of a man, down to this earth. He lives amongst us. Then he suffers and bleeds and dies on a cross. He comes to us. That's the incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's an awesome, awesome thing. And so when we place our trust in Christ alone to pay our sin debt, several things happen. And I want to give you, I know some of you would like more, but I'm going to give you just several theological terms, all right? For some of you, you know this stuff. It's a review. Be overwhelmed once again by it, all right? Don't in your cynicism go, oh, I know that. Well, if you know that, then live that. And you will get tears in your eyes then and you'll go, man, that's really awesome because not only do I know it, but I'm convinced of it. I'm overwhelmed by it. For some of the rest of you, you'll go, I never understood it that way. All right, just a few theological terms. The first thing that takes place is redemption. Redemption is very simple, right? Redemption means to free somebody from bondage. It often involves the paying of a ransom or the paying of a price of a debt in order to make redemption possible. So we were redeemed from the power of sin and the curse of the law. It's like a loan being paid off, all right? It's as if you came into the auditorium this morning and you had a huge debt. And I said to you, you're gonna be so glad you came to church today because today is Redemption Sunday. And I want you to write down all the debts that you have. And when you come to the end of the service, We've got this gentleman that's here this morning by the name of Wally Stike. And what most of you don't know is you thought he was just an average middle-class man. No, no. He is a billionaire extraordinaire. He's got lots of money. He's come to me this week and he has told me he wants to redeem all of you. And so just write your debts down. Tell him what it is. He'll write you a check when you leave the auditorium. (laughs) Would you be glad that you came on this Sunday? Wouldn't that be awesome? Some of you are looking around going, is he telling the truth? Like, is, Wall, is Wally really a multi-billionaire? Because if, if he is, I'm going to spend some time with that guy. I'd spend more time with you for sure. That's what redemption is. Redemption is paying off this debt in order to be freed from the bondage of your debt. Redemption is what takes place. Number two is regeneration. Regeneration is a really, really, really cool concept. 
Regeneration means simply this. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To be regenerated means to be made alive spiritually. Do you remember when we were reading in Ephesians chapter 2 and Paul said to the church at Ephesus that you were dead? Regeneration comes in and says, I'm going to make you alive now. Let me stop here for a second. I didn't do this in the first service and I probably should have. Do you remember the moment of regeneration in your life? When you were made alive? I I say this for this reason because I am convinced that churches, even Northwest Community Church, good evangelical churches in our area and across the globe are filled with people who have never truly been regenerated. They've never been made alive. And I really want you to think about that this morning before we come to the end of our talk today. Was there a moment in your life when you went, man, regeneration took place in my life. I am a new person. I came to know Christ. Some of you have heard my story. I grew up in a Christian home, came to know the Lord at age nine. I had not murdered anybody. I had not gotten drunk, done drugs, done any of those things. Worst thing I'd done is, you know, fed Pop-Tarts to the St. Bernard. That's, you know, I just didn't do anything really that bad. Agitated my sisters, did things like that. But I'm telling you, the night that I trusted Christ, that Sunday night, 40 years ago, when I trusted Jesus Christ as my personal savior, I, my friends, was regenerated. I was made alive. You say, well, you can't really know that. You were nine years old. I mean, what do you really remember? What do you really know? I remember it like it was last night. I was made alive. Things were different in my life. And I'm telling you this, if you prayed a prayer when you were a little child, that's great, that's fine. But you should have been made alive if you really understood what it meant to place your trust in Christ alone as your savior, rather than just simply saying, don't wanna go to hell. We are regenerated, we are made alive, and I'm convinced for so many of us, we are simply corpses that are laying in a casket whose bodies have been made up to look a certain way, but we will never, ever, ever get up and walk because all we do is we look good from a spiritual standpoint, but we have never been regenerated, we've never been made alive. I feel so compelled this morning to tell you that if you have not been regenerated, you can come to church here, you can do this, you can be a youth leader, you can work in our children's ministry, you can sing all these songs, you can do all these things. You will spend eternity apart from Christ unless you've been regenerated, unless you've been made alive. It's so important for us to understand that. It's such a great concept that we were dead and we were made alive to the things of God. If you sit here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and you have no heart for the things of God, looks not me. I'm just telling you that as many as received him who believed in his name, he made them alive. I don't say that you're not gonna struggle from time to time, but you ought to be, made, you ought to be aware of that time when you were dead and you came to life in Christ. That's regeneration. Justification, then, another great term. Another great theological term, and to be justified is to be declared legally righteous. It's a divine act whereby God declares the sinner to be innocent of his sin. (laughs) Innocent. Not sinless, just innocent. And declared sinless before God. 
Justification, by the way, is a, is a legal term. It's the act of imputing Christ, uh, the righteousness of Christ to the believer. And here's the really cool thing, that when God sees us as Christians, those of us that have placed our trust in Christ alone as our Savior, he sees us as righteous. <laughs> that's how God looks at us. And that's really awesome. Because for a lot of us, we live our lives just thinking that God's up in heaven going, you know, watch that. I saw what you just did. That's our concept of God, right? Some of us grew up in homes like that. I see what you're doing. I see what you said. You said you love me if you love me. It's not the way God views us. Justification says, when we come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, justification says that, that God looks at us and he declares us sinless. That's awesome. We're still sinners. But he goes, in my book, it's been covered. The debt has been paid. That's justification. And that's really awesome. And so we ask ourselves questions like, can I lose my salvation? Can God change his mind? It's really cool. John wrote in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Can you lose your salvation? It's really cool, the concept in the New Testament of adoption, that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're not natural born, we're adopted. And it's really interesting that even if you study back in, in Bible times, especially in the Roman culture, that especially fathers had, had basically life or death authority over their offspring. When a baby was born, if they looked at the baby and thought, I really you know, uh, wanted a, a son rather than a daughter, they could just dispose of that child. However, in that same culture, adoption was very different. If you chose to adopt, you were legally responsible for that person, no matter what happened. You couldn't be emancipated from that relationship. And so I think it's very interesting that God uses that terminology in the New Testament to say that we have been adopted into the family of God. In other words, he's not going to change his mind. Some people say, do I need to be baptized? Does that save me? It's known as the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. I know some of you have come from churches where that's practiced. We believe here at Northwest because we believe in sola fide, faith alone, that it is faith and trust alone in Jesus Christ that saves us, that if we add anything to faith, then what? Then it's not faith alone, right? So can baptism save us? Baptism is just simply an outward expression of what's already happened on the inside. We use so often as our proof text, the thief on the cross. Remember the thief hanging on the cross and saying, acknowledging that Jesus was who he said he was. And what does Jesus say? Got a problem. Don't know how we're going to reconcile this, but got to work out a baptism somehow. He doesn't say that, right? He says what? He says, today you'll what? You'll be with me. It was his faith that saved him. It wasn't his baptism. And so when we come into that relationship that we were created to have, I want to end by just asking the question, what's the result of that? The result of that is that we have peace with God. As we talked about last week, that, that everything is as it should be. Our debt is paid and we're debt free, spiritually speaking. 
okay? The financial debts, you still got them, right? But when you come into a relationship with Jesus, spiritually speaking, we are debt-free. Imagine what it would be like for some of you today who are under the bondage of financial debt. The the weight that you would feel off your shoulders if you were declared debt-free. That's what happens spiritually when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Romans 5 says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Everything is as it should be. And then what happens? Fourth area of doctrine, sanctification. Sanctification follows justification. In justification, our sins are completely forgiven in Christ. Sanctification is the process by which the Holy Spirit, who's at work inside of us, does his work, and he begins that process of transforming us and making us conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It's another way of knowing that you have an authentic, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Is there any transformation? Is there any change that takes place in your life? Are you becoming more like Jesus? We're sanctified. To sanctify means to be set apart for holy use. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And true sanctification, in order to become and act like and be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, it's impossible for that to happen apart from the atoning work of Christ in our lives. And then lastly, glorification. The short answer is that glorification is God's final removal of sin from the life of Christ followers in the eternal state. And I can't wait for that to happen. I don't know how all that takes place. I don't know when it's going to take place. But in Romans chapter 7, Paul makes it pretty clear that he can't wait for it to happen either. (laughs) As he talks about the good things that I want to do, I find myself not doing. The things that I know I shouldn't do, I I do. The good things I want to do, I don't do. I've just got this, 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 I just want it to be over with. That's glorification. We'll get to that point. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 says, For this light, Momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's going to be a day when we're not going to be under the weight of this sin. We're no longer under the penalty of the sin, but we still struggle because we live in a fallen world. You know, last week when Jerry did this and everybody gasped, you know, you look at that beautiful painting and you think, wow, what a mess. We were talking about in staff meeting this week how great it would have been if we could have used some kind of paint where I could have just, you know, peeled it, peeled it back and you could have seen the picture again. I think it's really cool, though, that this illustrates well what, what we did as a result of our sin. But, you know, we feel pretty passionately here at Northwest about when we present the gospel, that making sure people understand we're not just saved from sin, right? That's true. We got a debt that we can't possibly pay on our own, but we're not just saved from sin. We're saved to something else as well. It's interesting. Here's here's exactly what God does. God takes and he does this. He makes everything new again. That, that's, that's what God is in the business of doing. And that's what I think is so cool. That's why it is worth me giving my life, other people on our staff, and, and you as well, giving your life to the propagation and to the expression of the gospel. 
Because that's what God wants to do. God wants to transform our lives. He wants to repaint the picture again of your life and my life. He makes, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, he makes everything new again. And we're reconciled to him. We have the relationship that we were created to have. And that's really an awesome thing. And so we've asked each week, what doors do these truths close for us? Just two real quickly. It closes for us the idea that we can lose our salvation. If you're here this morning and you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, you've been redeemed, you've been justified, you've been regenerated, you're being sanctified. You are a follower of Jesus Christ and you cannot lose your salvation. You will not be unadopted. Secondly, it closes for us the door that we can earn our salvation. I don't care how, you, how good you are. You might think you're better than Matt Rice. Probably not, but you might be. Doesn't matter. You cannot earn this salvation. And what doors does it open for us? It opens for us the door of having confidence that salvation is everlasting, that we have eternal security. And also, and this is the cool thing, as I said just a few moments ago, it also opens the door for us that God has called us to something, not just simply from something. He hasn't just saved us from sin and then gone, all right, good, welcome, and then walked away. No, no. Now that our sin debt has been paid, we are in relationship with him and we are saved, we have been redeemed, we've been purchased, as it were, from that slave market of sin. And now God saves us and gives us purpose and he gives us meaning in our lives. And this, this is the gospel. The gospel is that there is this infinite, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful creator God who created all things for his glory. And you and I have belittled that, belittled his name, belittled his glory. Every one of us have at one time or another, or actually currently, believe that our way is better than God's. We fail to acknowledge, give him glory for the gifts he's given us. We question his rule and his authority while at the same time doing that with the brain he gave us and holds together and the lungs and the air that he gave us to breathe with. This is the great blasphemy of the universe. So we've all belittled God and God being just right and holy is not going to allow the belittlement of his name. God then, not being able to spare wrath, sends Christ in the flesh and crushes him. And in so doing, pours out his wrath against the children of God onto the Son, killing him. Then God raises him from the dead, and that same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in those who would believe. This is the gospel that you and I have right standing before God, not by our efforts, not by our works, not by our skill, not by whether or not we cuss or don't cuss, drink or don't drink, watch this, don't watch this, do this, don't do that, justified before God by the cross of Christ alone. Your lust, you're not gonna be able to fix it. Your bitterness, you're not gonna be able to fix it. Your rage, anger, those deviances that have been following you around, you don't possess the power of life and death. You can't resurrect anything. Christ came. That's the good news. That's why we don't celebrate us. That's why we continually celebrate him. We 
who boast in the cross and the cross alone. The same power that is at work in raising Christ from the dead is at work in me and work in all who believe. This is the gospel. You know, you can ask yourself the question this morning as we close. You can say to me, and I, and I really think you should, in each one of these doctrines Jerry and I are going to talk about over these six weeks, what if I'm wrong? What if everything I did for the last 35 minutes, what if I'm all wrong? What if I don't have it right? What if Billy Graham has gotten it all wrong? What if Jesus was simply a good man who lived a good life, but then he just died a tragic death? And he's never coming back. There is no God, and we just live, and then we die. I wrote this down this week, just my thoughts. If what I told you this morning is 100% wrong, and there is no God who sent his son Jesus to pay the sin debt of people like me and give me eternal life, then I simply have lived a fairly good life. I've been surrounded by good people who love other people. I've loved my family and been loved by them. I will have been faithful to my wife and hopefully left this world a better place because I loved others more than I loved myself. What a way to go. But if I'm right and you take the chance that I'm not and you die without placing your trust in Christ alone as your savior, you lose everything. You see, because at the end of the day, it is all about Jesus. It isn't about how good you are or where you fit on the, on the spectrum of people that have lived over the course of time. And, you know, if you get a certain, if you get a certain percentage, God kind of grades on the curve, and so you'll just kind of get swept in. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. And what's happening this morning, I believe, even in a setting like this, is Jesus is extending a hand of friendship to you. And what he asks of you is to simply agree with him about your sin, to turn around, move in a new direction, place your trust in Christ alone as your Savior. And here's what happens. He forgives you. He changes you. You enter into a love relationship with him and he's gonna walk with you and he's going to encourage you. He's gonna listen to your prayer and he's gonna enable you to live your life with purpose. And that all starts when you come into the relationship that you were created to have by placing your trust in Christ alone as your savior. That, that's the gospel. Let's pray. As you bow your heads and close your eyes, I, I really believe that I would be so remiss this morning if after we talk about the great doctrine of salvation, I don't give you a time to just acknowledge where you are in your own spiritual journey. You know, just last week, we, on our little connection card, as we had people update their database, there were no fewer than five people that indicated they didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus and they wanted to learn more about what that was about. <laughs> it's a great Sunday for that to happen. You know, if you're here this morning and you say, I've never understood all that, I understand it for the first time this morning. Or maybe you're here and you say, you know, when I hear that again and I think about regeneration and being made alive and being sanctified to become more like Christ. None of those things have ever taken place in my life. 
If that's you, I would invite you this morning to come into the relationship that you were created to have with the God that loves you and has made a way for you to have that relationship. And so I want to, just before I pray, I, I want to say, if, if there's somebody here and you say, that's me, Brian, I'm understanding it for the first time. Or maybe I've been a dead man that's coming to church and I look good and everybody thinks I'm a Christ follower, but I know I've never been made alive. But this morning, I want to place my trust in Christ alone as my Savior. What a great Sunday to do that. If you'd say that, uh, would you have enough humility, enough courage to simply raise your hand and let me acknowledge that? that's you this morning, just raise your hand right where you're seated. Nobody else looking around. I'm the only one that's looking. Just raise your hand right where you're seated. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? If you raised your hand, I want to invite you. I'm not going to embarrass you at all. I, I invite you. I'll be up here at, 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 the, at the front at the end of the service. Jerry, you'll be up here with me as well. And we'd love to talk with you. I'd love to just pray with you and, and have you acknowledge your trust in Christ alone as your Savior and come into that relationship that you were created to have. And if you didn't raise your hand, I'll still be up here. I'd love to, love to have the opportunity to pray with you this morning. God, thanks for who you are. God, we are all desperate people. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We need to be made alive. And the only way for that to happen is to place our trust in the shed blood of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. I thank you for these that raised their hand this morning. God, I pray now they take the next step. I pray it wouldn't just be an emotional thing for them and a service. We never want to see that happen. We want to see authenticity. We want to see people come into a, a dynamic relationship with Jesus and their life to be transformed. And I pray that that's what that will be. God, I pray for others that are here. Some that God prayed a prayer decades ago, and yet they know in their heart they were never regenerated. They have no heart for spiritual things. They have no desire for your word, no passion to share the good news of the gospel. Their lives don't look any different than any of the people that they hang out with on a daily basis, they work with, they live in the neighborhood with. God, I pray that they would not be deceived and come to the end, come to their eternal state and realize that they never, ever knew you. They just simply knew a lot about you. Don't allow Satan to deceive the hearts of men and women and students, children that are here today. We want the gospel. We want the real thing. We want it to transform and change every part of our life so that we impact and influence this world for eternity pray these things in Jesus' name.